the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now, back to Lifeline. We are back. The time is 6.07 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. We're basically operating from the springboard proposition that marriage isn't meant to meet your needs. And it's Christopher Ash. He's, a, he's definitely a believer. He's, he's, a, uh, he's a Christian, and he's operating from a biblical framework. Um, and, and, and yet he's addressing what our culture has so uh, relentlessly done to uh, defining human beings. Uh, he's actually uh, apologetically uh, attacking a false view of a biblical manhood and biblical womanhood from this standpoint, you guys. And you know this is true from the moment that I say it. Our culture makes men and women fundamentally sex objects, a penis and a vagina. You know that. You know that. You can't hardly watch anything where that underlying message is not a subtle, if not blatant, uh, 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 blatant uh, factor in framing the movie or the entertainment. You know that. Uh, and as Christians, it's one of the latent sins that we have to overcome. It is not the central and core sin, but it becomes sin's expression. What do I mean by that? I mean that when we are uh, caused to falsely define human beings as being largely emotional instead of relatively emotional. We are largely emotional. That is that our true self is the emotional self. And that's the way our world defines us. And when you accept that faulty definition, you fail to understand the greater integrity of our identity as being rooted in spirituality and intellectual properties that carry the necessity of a moral and ethical framework for the functional side of living. And that emotions are relative identity markers by which they actually cooperate with our spiritual core, moral and ethical uh, essence so that emotions are designed to serve as facilitators of a moral ethical drive. That is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself is moral and ethical. And it should have all of the emotional factors supporting the drive to want to engage God and engage our neighbor at the level of the gospel. I should be emotionally moved by God's love for me. But I must first be morally and ethically convinced and convicted and grounded in God's love for me. I am not sobbing and whining and and moaning or so, so undone by God's love for me that I can't function on a moral ethical level in terms of God's love for me. Uh, Consequently and secondarily, my love for my fellow man does not first start from my emotions. And this is why the article is so very important that if my love for my fellow man outside my doors does not start with my emotions, why must my love for my spouse or my children start with my emotions 
also. See what I'm getting at? Uh, Cain allowed his emotions to get to him. Genesis chapter four plainly says it. God comes to Cain as God does, cuts the lights on and says, Cain, your face is telling everything. You are emotionally overwhelmed. You are emotionally distraught. You are emotionally angry. You are emotionally offended. And you have not worked through the moral ethical mandate that was given to you, Cain, to bring a proper offering and everything would have been well. Now, your brother did the right thing. You happen to have done the wrong thing. But see, for God to talk like this to men and women in my generation, my 21st century Gen X, Gen Z, post-millennial, post-modern generation where there's no right and no wrong, there's no, no black and white, no truth. In the generation in which I live for God to say this is right and that's wrong is offensive because it's going to pierce through and cut through all of your emotional facade because you grew up pampered by a lying culture that told you that you were at the core of your essence emotional. It's not true. The core of your essence, you are moral and you are ethical and your emotions serve as an aid in abetment. It can affirm And it can also indict. If your emotions are healthy, if my emotions are healthy, they serve to help me say no to evil. No to wrong. Ye who love the Lord hate evil. Hate the wrong. Love righteousness. Do good. Show mercy. Do justice. Walk humbly with the Lord your God. See, when that kind of framework is is uh, is at the foundation of my identity in God through Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God, my morals and ethics are in the right place. And now I can deal with my wife on a moral level. My love for her is moral and ethical. And the emotional component is a wonderful addition that allows us to stay attracted to each other. But after many, many years hence now, I am far more driven by wanting to maintain moral and ethical rectitude with my God and my wife to make sure that we have a door open for eternity than I am to sacrifice morals and ethics at the altar of emotional uh, sexual gratification, which we're being told is the essence of happiness. Emotional and sexual gratification are simply peripheral facilitators and benefits that come with operating in a covenant context where spiritual virtues are the foundation and joy of our soul. I'll come back to the second part of this article because it destroys marriages and societies after I deal with our phone calls. Let me go to line number one and talk with Jermaine in Oakland. Jermaine, are you there? Yes, I am. Hey, what's going on, man? Uh, Not much. Just, um, you know, I've been getting opinions of pastors I trust and, and, uh, you know, you're last uh, on the list because it's Monday, but I just wanted to hear your take on the Amber Geiger situation, the, the former police officer who shot and killed the, the uh, unarmed man in his own apartment. I um I was just paying attention to the trial, and uh-huh. I was watching the scene take place with his younger brother. We ended up forgiving her, and yeah, and uh, that, that that surprised me. Uh-huh. You know, I, I thought he actually showed a lot of poise, and, and I was actually feeling like it was a great display of, of forgiveness and i know i couldn't have done the same thing where i had the same age but uh what really shocked me was i was talking to people who were close to me and they were outraged and i was uh 
I was most surprised by it. I did, it just made me start questioning other people who said they were believers. And he, uh, the shock that I had was these people who claimed to be believers were all just in an uproar for the fact that he actually went over to give her a hug, and the judge gave her a Bible, and, and just the act of forgiveness, period. I can understand maybe not at that moment in, in the courtroom, but I had no problem with it. I didn't see any wrong in and what they were trying to do, because it was obvious to me their heart was in the right place. But I've heard former gangsters speak out. I've heard uh, uh, pastors in the black community speak out. And none of them have touched on the fact that she was entitled to forgiveness, just like any of them, you know, would be. And, and some of these pastors have had various infidelities. They, they've uh, preached prosperity message. They, they've been caught numerous times, babies up and down the highway, and not one of them gave any any accolades to this young man for for uh, just preaching Christ to to Amber Geiger. So I just wanted to get your take on the situation. So now, do you really, do you, now after listening to me for many, many years, would you think that I would even for like a nanosecond <clears throat> follow in chorus with the, the, the kinds of characters that you have just mentioned in terms of the different pastors, et cetera, who have, you know, shown outrage towards that kind of expression. Do you even think that I would even remotely affirm uh, anything that they are, are stating or are objecting to? Oh, not even close. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> I mean, if we were to, to analyze the 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 social outrage behind this particular event, the underlying and fundamental offense is that this particular situation does not allow for more racial division and venting of, you know, black, white on black crimes. It just doesn't allow for it. And it, it doesn't fit our narrative of, of, of the, you know, social justice uh, paradigm and, and, you know, get the white man at all costs and and punish, uh, you know, the, the 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 superior powers and 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 destroy the matriarchal system, destroy the police department, destroy, you know, all white folks who are in privileged positions that 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 gospelless message. That dominates a lot of the narrative among uh, African-Americans and people of color who have fallen prey to the Trojan horse of of cultural Marxism, which I've talked about before. You know, this um, basically are indicating that they have no real understanding of love of God for themselves. Remember what the scripture says. He that forgiveth little loveth little and he that forgiveth much loveth much. And when the harlot was uh, demonstrably uh, showing her love for love for Christ in the midst of a bunch of men where she had uh, had had demonstrated the kind of uh, confidence and boldness. And I would also call uh, blindness to all of the structures and powers that would hinder her from her her object of affection, which is Christ, by which she pours the alabaster box uh, uh, bottle of of oil on his head and, and, and wipes his feet with her tears and her hair and demonstrates such a passionate love for him because of his atoning work that was about to be accomplished in her behalf and the experience of grace wrought in her soul. Uh, they all were offended by her as were, were the disciples as well, because their value systems were continually 
uh, challenged by who Christ was. He had broken all of the protocol of traditionalism. And here we have an example of that among us, uh, Jermaine, where uh, failing to recognize that there is nothing inappropriate, although it's oxymoronic, although it's paradoxical, although it's counterintuitive, to watch someone demonstrate such a lavish expression of forgiveness on someone who has committed such a heinous crime as killing her, uh, his brother, uh, that, 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 that kind of lavish love is really the offense of the gospel. It is the offense of the gospel. Uh, the gospel offends men and women because the gospel lays us all low and marks us all out as wretched sinners who really only by the grace of God did not occupy the space of this police officer who fell prey to behaving in a fashion that was dishonorable. Only the grace of God keeps me from being in her shoes. Only the grace of God keeps you from being in her shoes. Now, our uh, our friends who have taken on all of these other outrageous expressions that you are noting, if they if they if they if they traffic in false gospels, if they traffic in prosperity preaching, if they traffic in uh, in, in a lot of the stupidity of the larger religious groups today that basically are shallow and without sound Bible knowledge, then they are trafficking in unforgiveness because they are trafficking in pride. They're trafficking in the deceitfulness of sin. They are trafficking in the lust of the flesh. And they must now put on the fig leaves of self-righteousness and operate out of a pseudo outrage as if somehow They were automatically and naturally better than her, which is no gospel at all. And really, if we were to take the time, Jermaine, to work through and deconstruct both parties more uh, psychologically, more uh, more intimately, more personally, both on the part of the young man who so quickly uh, expressed forgiveness towards her, as well as herself, if we were to look into their backgrounds, we would find some very logical reasons as to why he needed to actually quickly move into a place of forgiving her so that he could move on with her life by releasing her to God. Because for him to forgive her is not for her to be forgiven of God. For him to forgive her is for him to have released her and all of her reactions and all of her consequences to her providential circumstances and her divine accountability to God himself. This young man has liberated himself by forgiving her. And this is what forgiveness does when it properly is executed from a place of understanding the merit of the grace of God in my own life. When I forgive somebody else, I am liberating myself from that person's subsequent actions and I don't have to feel obligated that I need to now get reparations from them. That's what he does. He, he, you never know what is in the background of that young man, why he did that, why he so quickly said, Lord, help me to overcome this situation as heinous as it was so that I don't allow a root of bitterness to build up in me so that I blame her right along with all white folks and all people in authority and all uh, hyper patriarchal godless systems and structures that have been the cause of my downfall, i.e. going back to Ellen's call as well, because we always want to blame it on somebody else. Maybe he sat, that young man, maybe he sat and said, you know what? On any given day, being high 
uh, as I have been in the past, drunk as I have been in the past, loaded as I have been in the past. It's very possible that I did something stupid and got myself in a situation where I could have harmed somebody to the grief and burden of those family members of that person that I harmed and would have to suffer the consequences of the brunt of their hostility towards me. He could have easily assessed that. On the other hand, with her. She could be deeply remorsed and apprehended by the justice of God and the work of the Holy Ghost, convincing her of sin, preparing her for Christ's righteousness, and liberating her from the decree that the judgment is passed. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, which is God's solution for all of us, to be quite frankly. If, if our world doesn't come to know Jesus Christ in the pardon of their sins, then we're all walking around as little judges, little fiats, little Lilliputians wanting to condemn people and destroy people and make them pay. As if we are not all under the indictment of Romans 3.23 for all of sin and come short of the glory of God and keep on coming short of the glory of God and keep on coming short of the glory of God. But God has freely justified us by his grace in Jesus Christ through his shed blood, whom he has set for to be a propitiation for our sins, which is the good news of the gospel, which a proud, self-righteous, fig-leaf sinner, religious or not, naturally shirks away against. It's called the offense of the gospel. I know you get it, my dear brother. Thank you for the call. Thank you for this exercise. Got to take a break. When I come back, Mary, I will take your call. I'm going to read the second half of this letter. I've got three lines open. one 367 5329 I can tell you what that young man did. He liberated himself and he liberated his siblings. He liberated his children. He liberated generations around him and generations under him from falling into the same pattern of vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith me. The Monday edition of Lifeline, one 367 I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back the time, 633. Three lines are open if you want to call Chime in on the topic. Bring a new topic, one 367 I do have the second part of the article that I will read here shortly. After I take a call on line number two from Mary in Castro Valley. Mary, are you there? I'm here. Hi, how are you? <laughs> okay, how are you? I'm great. What's your question, comment, or observation? Okay, um, I cornered you before in the chiropractor office, so you might be familiar with that, but I probably shouldn't say that to you. I don't. Um, which one? Um, in, in Dublin, John. Dr. Dewan. Yes. Okay. Hi, Mary. Yeah, hi. What's going so, on? So you're talking on marriage, yes. and of course, that's a big Achilles heel here. Um, so I really, in this year, discovered that my husband is a narcissist. Okay. And um, I have been kind of hitting my head against the wall, counseling, uh, programs, you name it, anything to try to make this run smoothly in any kind of shape or form Right. uh, with really no success. So pretty much I've spent 30 years in a battle. Right. Um, um, I took care of his mom Mm -hmm. until she passed away. We lived with her because he didn't want to move. Right. Um, Four kids. 
pretty much had to be the man and the woman of the family, mm-hmm. uh, which has been very painful for me. Sure. And really, um, not. I'm at a point where I really just want to run from right. the marriage. Now I know we're talking about you know ministering to your spouse, and I I feel like I've really tried to do that. I know I can struggle kind of with self righteousness. Sure, all but of in us. In my can. head, aren't we going to do everything right? Why Why wouldn't we do this? Why wouldn't we want to invest in our kids? Why wouldn't we want to invest in our marriage? And so, really, I want to know what you think about that, where you go from there, where you have somebody that has no inbox, can't take anything in, and you can't reason with them. Right. Um, Well, covenantally, he's obligated, as well as you are, to uphold fundamental vows and biblical mandates of being a biblical man. Um, Mm -hmm. And the same way that you would be, we would be called to reciprocate. In other words... And, and I've st- said it for years, Mary, in all of my rule of engagement classes, and we have many of them online at gracebiblechurch.com, grace-bible.com. Um, Good to know. That, that, that marriage is not merely a contract like a lot of people would assume. It's not a prison sentence. It is not you sign on the dotted line and you're condemned to hell no matter what is going on in the marriage. That's not biblical marriage. It's not, uh, it's not Christian marriage. It's not godly marriage. Marriage Mm. is, by definition, the two becoming one. And where that process, Genesis 2.24, where that process is not taking place, where the two are becoming one, and there are a number of tiers that can be, or categories that can be identified in terms of becoming one. And this is kind of what I'm going to be dealing with in our new, our next rules of engagement. I'm talking about the art of cooperation. Um, where one of the spouses has failed to follow through with the I wills and I do. You know how the vows go, right? If you had a traditional vow marriage, I promise to love you, promise to honor you, promise to serve you, promise to provide for you, promise to protect you um, by the grace of God, you know, till death do us part. I don't know if you had a traditional marriage like that, but most of us did. And that's the kind of marriage that I, 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 you know, I officiate with those kinds of vows because biblically two married people are to love each other sacrificially and that should express itself in cooperation. Now, when we discover that we are a narcissist, the problem with a narcissistic uh, pathology is that it actually takes from the marriage. It doesn't give. It takes from the marriage. It doesn't give. A narcissist starts with self, ends with self. And so it takes. It does very little in the ultimate um, equality of cooperation that marriage is called to be as a model of Christ in the church. And with that kind of narcissistic tendency, what you have over time is a defrauding of one of the uh, covenant partners so that you drain the emotional and the spiritual and the uh, uh, covenantal uh, bank account of the party that's always doing the giving when the narcissist is always doing the taking. Uh, And the narcissist can take by being aggressive and assertive and just exhausting the other spouse. Or the narcissist can take by simply opting out not to support the other spouse in the critical areas in which he or she needs to be supported. And from what I have understood in my research about a narcissist that may be one pathologically married, 
is that the only way that you can actually overcome his or her narcissism are by radical consequences. Without radical consequences, the narcissist will fundamentally kind of just let everything around them die on the vine so long as they can suck it dry. That's just, that is the, the painful reality of the person that's given to themselves. What that means, and you would already know this depending on how long you've been married, you would know this, <clears throat> that there has not been a high enough price paid for the sin of defrauding the spouse. He has to experience a deep enough pain for that kind of defrauding for him to be quickened to the awareness that his narcissism is massively destructive to everybody around him or her. And that would mean that you are uh, you are going to probably have to up the ante of consequences in his life so that he can be uh, jump started into the reality that his narcissism is an, a is a grotesque sin against God in terms of if he professes to be a believer. He has to have help from on high to overcome his ability to live in a state where he's always taking and never giving. And the uh, biblical mandate for that would fundamentally operate out of First Corinthians 7. If he's not given to... Um, well, and, and I won't get into that over there, but there may be other areas in his life where his narcissism drives him away from you and, uh, and, and puts him into illicit areas. And those illicit areas would serve as other sin traits and components that would justify separation. And so First Corinthians 7 would talk about if you separate from your spouse, if the believing spouse separates from the other believing spouse, ostensibly believing spouse, you just stay separated to see whether or not that separation would bring about the kind of radical change in his life that would be essential to maybe a restoration of the relationship. And if not, then uh, you're going to discover that in that separation um, that uh, you're going to see things about the relationship that you're presently in that you can't see unless you are in that separated state. That would be the next step. That's why intuitively you are in flight mode. You do know what I'm saying, don't you? Yes. Yep, you do know. It's just a matter of whether or not it's just a, a matter of whether or not you're going to pull that trigger. So one of the things that happens with all of us when we are in a uh, a situation where the relationship has been so broken for so long um, is that the toxic element in the marriage, whether I mean, regardless if it's coming from the other side, it paralyzes you, and 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 you begin to live in that mess as well, and it hinders the capacity for love to function at a level of radical response early on enough to save the marriage, even if that radical response is said, hey, I'm not living like this anymore. So you can go, I can go, go get some help, and then we can talk. But I'm not going to continue to facilitate this kind of brokenness because your brokenness is breaking me, and I'm, I'm tired of being broken. So until we reach that level of wanting to be healed, because what you're talking about is wanting to be healed because you're in trouble, too. And you know that. And and that trouble keeps you from from operating out of maximum joy, maximum fullness, 
maximum uh, competency, maximum confidence, and uh, and the things that a believer wants to be able to do. Um, that 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 you are free to pursue the fullness of of God in Christ in your life. Uh, when others who are obligated to facilitate that fullness with you, this is one of the things I was going to say, and I'll do this after the break. I'll just read this last article because this is where the program is going. Uh, You are free to pursue the fullness of God's purpose in your life, particularly if, Mary, you have been able to kind of overcome the obligations of raising kids. They're pretty much up and out of the house, or at least they're old enough to be clear on what mama is doing. Mama is trying to get hold because mama has been jacked up for a long time or daddy because it happens for men as well women can be grossly narcissistic as well daddy has been so overwhelmingly bogged down with meeting all of the demands of mama and and our demands and he's just been just kind of like a a leaf bowed over Uh, we could see he's dry he needs water he needs resources he needs refreshment he needs reinvigoration and it's not coming in the 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 pot that he happens to have been planted in with his present spouse and so he will have to be uprooted and planted in the soil of singleness where god can begin to work on him or her to uh to strengthen them in their uh in in their autonomy and who knows what the future may bring about in terms of in terms of your spouse that that's something that can be left up to god but you're god's first as would be the case for any couple, we are all God's first, and um, and we have to make sure that we don't succumb to a kind of morbid idolatry that would uh, cause us to sacrifice our life for someone who is not reciprocating in the context of marriage, because this is about marriage. This is not a contract. The marriage does not justify any one person so abusing another person or neglecting another person that we distort and deny what marriage is supposed to be. And I know you get that. I know you do. So I got to take a break. Um, there will be a whole lot of people praying for you, Mary, because they heard you. A lot of sisters who know where you are. A lot of brothers who know where you are as well. <clears throat> and you're brave for calling, too. So you can call again in the future if you want to. I'd be glad to talk with you more. I'm going to take a break right now. Um Let's see here. Three lines open, one 367 one If you want to chime in, I'd be glad to hear from you after this break. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back. The time is 6.50 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Let me read the rest of this article. And then I'll take your calls and see if we can get some conversation in before the hour closes. Uh, pray for our sister, Mary. She represents a lot of uh, situations in which this particular plaguing uh, characteristic uh, more or less can dominate and intoxify any relationship. The author says concerning marriage isn't meant to meet your needs. Point number two, because it destroys marriages and societies are talking about a false love, a self-centered view of sex and marriage destroys marriage and society. Listen to what he's saying. At a time when we have higher than ever expectations of what marriage offers, marriages are crumbling as never before. He's right. So you can pretend that you are very white or uh, any of the salacious female prostitute singers or actors out there and that you can do it all night long. 
it, marriages are crumbling everywhere. So that the devil has put up a smoke screen and a lie about the satisfaction rate that comes out of self-centered sexual, you know, gratification. He says we can see this destructiveness by looking at how societies work. Societies in which sex and marriage are viewed as a means to personal fulfillment. There's the problem. Encourages a man or a woman to gaze into each other's eyes. Encourages each to find in the other all they need. Each to be all to the other. Such cultures promote what we may call a religious coupledom. In the which the goal of every man and woman is to live in such an exquisite union. The very word relationship, when used as shorthand for sexual relationship, reveals this way of thinking. To not be in relationship is presumably to be lonely. And if it were true that relationship is found primarily in sexual relations, then we would have to seek sexual intimacy at all cost. We don't need to swallow this lie, he says. Overemphasizing couples as also overemphasizing couples as couples also isolates them from the supportive influences of wider family and society. The defining moment is thought to be when they are alone in the bedroom, not when they are serving as a new social family unit. Historic. Would you hear this? What 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 he is stating is that when couples take the value of sexual intimacy, which is important, and rises it above their witness as believers and influence in the gospel in their families and their culture, they are committing a major crime. He says the defining moment is thought to be when they are alone in the bedroom, not when they are serving a new society, a new social and family unit. Historian Lawrence Stone writes, it is ironic It is an ironic thought that just at the moment when some thinkers are heralding the advent of a perfect marriage based upon full satisfaction of sexual, emotional, and creative needs of both husband and wife, the proportion of marriage breakdowns is rising rapidly. Do you know why? Because we're not dealing with the true imago Dei. Sex, sensuality, and other pleasures become a substitute that never, ever really meets the ultimate need. Christopher Brooke, another historian, observes, while faced with the spectacle of broken marriages, we have come by a strange paradox, which, however, goes very deep into the roots of the subject, to expect far more from a happy marriage. Yet one theologian puts it, even the smallest out, the smallest cottage of the happiest of lovers cannot be habitable unless it has at least a door and a few windows opening outward. The key to a good marriage, he says, isn't to pursue a good marriage, but to pursue the honor of God. We are not made to gaze forever into the eyes of another human being and find in them all we need. If we think we are, we're bound to be disappointed. If my dear wife ever thought I could be everything to her. She certainly knows better now. I echo that. And of course, if I think marriage is there to meet my needs, what do I do when it fails to meet them? Ooh. See? The irony that we expect so much of marriage but find it disappointing is an irony Scripture understands perfectly. It's called idolatry. If I pursue any goal above the honor of God, I'm worshiping an idol. The moment I make my relationship the goal of my life, I doom myself to disappointment. That would also be true of the caller. The caller is not condemned to her marriage 
when her spouse is failing to be responsible to take on the equivalent and, and male part of the duty of marriage. Uh, she she is not responsible to pretend that everything is all right and that she's functioning in a marriage when he's just living <clears throat> in a state of massive isolation and narcissism. That impacts her soul. That impacts her her confidence. It impacts her joy and it impacts her relationship with God. And as such, whatever impacts the relationship with God has to go. That's for all of us. The justifiable grounds in 1 Corinthians 7 is that when the peace of God, which should be rooted and grounded in a nurturing context, is sacrificed at the altar of a, of a, a spouse that does not want to facilitate their spouse's growth and maturity in Christ. And this is what we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen. The sin that's going on in our culture is a lack of affirming the need for marriages to grow in Christ. I see it everywhere. I see it everywhere. I see the substitution for a robust and vital commitment to Jesus Christ to just family worship. Not family worship of God, just family worship, where the family is isolated on its own island, not at all engaged with the body of Christ or the mission of the true and the living God. It's idolatry. It will have its ultimate backlash because the marriage institution is God's, and that's why... Uh, when we don't root it and ground it in God, the, the enemy is allowed to come in and bust it up. And that's what will happen to all of our marriages if we don't take God serious and understand that marriage is his institution, it's his enterprise, it's his corporation, and that it must be operated according to his rules or take the sign uh, in God we trust. Take the sign down, married by God. Take the sound uh, sign down, a three-fold cord is easily is not easily broken. Take that sign down and call it just shacking up or uh, partnering or whatever you want to call it, which is what the world is doing. They got it right. They have no desire for God to be first and them to be intertwined in the reality of and the authority of and the presence of and the blessings of God. They don't want that in the marriage. And as such, they don't read his Bible. They don't submit to his rules. They don't capitulate to the presence of the Spirit of God. They harden their hearts. They sear their conscience. And they erect their own altar. They worship at the idol of self. They give themselves over to their own pleasures. And God is just, I guess, just a byword. It's where it is in a lot of Christian marriages, too. It's not about God. We were talking about Ananias and Sapphira. Well, what about Aquila and Priscilla? Lauded by God for committing themselves to the ministry, addicting themselves to the ministry, opening the door to be a blessing to all kinds of people. There you go. That's the juxtaposition, Aquila and Priscilla. I can tell you heaven rejoices in that kind of couple. I said this in one of our ROEs. I wish there were more Aquila and Priscilla. I hope to be able to affect that in the downline coming years. God's blessed me with a lot of young couples. We'll see if I can do anything to help them to be persuaded to give their life to the glory of God. So that men and women might know Jesus because of their artful cooperation in life together. Well, that's my word for today. Um, Been joyful hanging out with you guys. Getting ready to wrap it up. In a moment, you will hear the music. <clears throat> Until then, keep your uh, keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. And uh, remember, 
He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. It pleased God that all the fullness of deity would dwell in him. And we can find in him what we need. It's not that we don't need each other. We do. But we don't need each other at the expense of God. God in Christ can meet all your needs, supply all of your wants, fulfill all of your desires, if you will, but abandon yourself to him. And then he will give you friends and families that will help facilitate your God-ordained call and identity to be a child of God thriving in this wicked world. Until next time, God bless you. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.